0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Focus Group podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, and this week we're talking about the GOP's evolution on foreign policy. One year ago, around when Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, I did a focus group of two time Trump voters, and they were firmly pro Ukraine. One year on, not so much. Only 29% of Republicans see Russia as a major threat to U.S. interests according to a January Pew Research poll. That's down from 51% in March 2022. At that time, only 9% of Republicans thought we were doing, quote unquote, too much for Ukraine. This past January, that number jumped to 40%. The Iraq War also began 20 years ago this week. All of the Republican voters we talked to supported it 20 years ago, but now they are deeply cynical about American foreign policy. My guest today is Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic and professor emeritus of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's also my good buddy. Tom, thanks for being here.
1: Good to be with you, Sarah.
0: Okay. I'm just going to ask you an open-ended question just to start because you already tweeted and you already showed me your face right before we started the podcast <laughs> uh, to indicate that perhaps your reaction to hearing these voters was one of a deep concern. But just tell me what you thought of the focus groups listening to these voters,
1: well, you know in a way i'm sometimes i'm I'm the worst person to ask because i'm I adhere to that old Churchill line about the argument against democracy is a ten minute discussion with the voter mm-hmm. um, but I also understand that foreign policy is really complicated, and people find it you know a difficult and emotional subject. The overall comment I'll make compared to say. Focus groups that you see on television in the 70s or the 80s, even, is just this immense amount of confidence and assurance. There are a few exceptions, and you know, they'll probably come up when we're talking of people say, Well, I I absolutely know what's going on here. And of course, then they proceed to say something that's just wrong. And so the information basis and the kind of epistemological certainty you know, those two things combined really worry me. And I think that's part of an overall phenomenon that's been a problem, you know, in this country for years now. Yeah, well,
0: a lot of them have been doing their own research.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs)
0: So I know as a a complaint of yours and something that I hear all the time in the focus groups is the the sort of gold standard for information uh, because they can't trust anything else is that they do their own research. And as a result, they were kind of all over the map about what they thought about foreign policy and what information they had. But I want to dive into what these voters were thinking because I want to just sort of stipulate up front. I'm not a foreign policy person. At the risk of sounding like one of these voters, overly confident in my own positions, I just want to say I have you on here to be the expert because I am not. So I was born in 1980, which I'm sorry, that must sound hard to you. Because I think you're, you're slightly older. Wow. On the- <laughs> I'm going into Grandpa Simpson
1: mode while we're sitting here already. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so I was born
0: in 1980. So I'm born the year that Reagan takes office. I remember the wall coming down. I was in college when 9-11 happened. Uh, I sort of began my professional career as a young conservative at the time we were going into Iraq. And I was part of a conservative establishment that was super supportive of going into Iraq and i you know was sort of raised on the weekly standard politically and by a lot of the neocons and i guess the one thing sort of stipulating that i don't know that much specifically about foreign policy i will say the change in the republican party and the change in republican voters for how they talk about foreign policy is to me the biggest change. I mean, there's a lot of other changes we can talk about in terms of character not counting.
1: No, it's astonishing.
0: Yeah, right. There's changed a lot, but but this, this on foreign policy, it really is wild, right?
1: Right, right. And as you were entering the world and uh, opening your eyes for the first time in this great adventure, I was voting for Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it was my first election, and I think when it comes to foreign policy, and in so many other things, but foreign policy especially. What's changed is that the party that I joined in the late 70s, which had this deeply confident, optimistic, very assured belief in America, even though by the end of the 70s, this was after Watergate, it was after Vietnam, you know, all the tropes that are also true about how people didn't trust government anymore. The party of Reagan, as it was constituted in 80 and onward, believed in the Shining City on the Hill, that America could do great things, that we were more often right than wrong. And that confidence has been lost. And the base of the Republican Party in particular has kind of congealed into this sour, churlish, epox on all houses, everybody sucks kind of pessimism that not only pushes back against the foreign policy establishment that these voters, these base voters see as hopelessly liberal, Mm. which, you know, that's, that's a big part of it, right? If you say state department or even defense department, you know, the corrupt liberal deep staters, even though, especially in in national security, most of those people are pretty conservative. Um, And so they've kind of resorted to this know nothing isolationism with one horrible difference, which is that these are people that go to rallies that say I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. They've kind of cast the Russians as a placeholder in the way that liberals used to do, by the way. This is the thing that really, if you were a young conservative in the 80s, that liberals would say, well, you know, the Soviet Union's not perfect, but it's a counterweight to the United States. It limits the United States from just doing whatever it wants, kind of stuff you read in The Nation back then. The core Republicans have become that. Well, you know, Putin is not a great guy, but, you know, white Christian, traditionalist, hates trans people, hates gay people. What's not to like about the guy? And I think that this is really the effect of propaganda, a steady drumbeat of propaganda from places like Fox, but also the collapse of local news, the collapse of any form of news that isn't either entertainment or internet rabbit holes. Yeah where people just don't read newspapers. They have no sense really of national news. As you say, they do their own research. And I think that's what's happened with a lot of these people. And it has completely melted down their sense of moral orientation or their ability to engage in any kind of critical reasoning.
0: This is undoubtedly true. And one of the reasons I know it's true is that I was doing focus groups right after Russia invaded Ukraine. And we did an episode back then with Alexander Vindman, And this is how two-time Trump voters sounded back then.
2: The most concerning issue at the moment, I believe, is Putin going into Ukraine, um, war crimes. The issue for the United States, I think
0: the major problem is who the president is. If Trump was president,
2: I should say he is, but we know what happened on that. Putin would have never invaded.
0: What do you guys think about what you've seen from the Ukrainian people and their leader? How do you feel about them?
2: They're amazing. I I love love them. Absolutely amazing. Especially when a 60-year-old woman can stand there and tell a soldier from Russia, I'm going to put seeds in your pocket and then kill you. And then the seeds will grow up. Flowers yep. over your dead body. Right when the babushkas take AK-47s. There you go. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's impressive. Amen. I th- God bless. I him. think
2: President Zelensky is a phenomenal leader too. I mean, when his line when he said, "You know, I need ammunition. I don't need a ride." Like that was right. such mm-hmm. a powerful line. If and Joe I- Biden had one percent of his spine, America would yes. be okay. We have more than enough oil and natural gas in the United States that we can supply the rest of the world. Nobody's got to get gas from Russia. Prices would come down here as a result. Open up the
1: fucking pipeline.
0: Okay. Now, I remember this episode really vividly. And the reason I remember it is because gas prices were really high. And a bunch of voters in that group said that they would tolerate high gas prices if it meant that we could defeat Vladimir Putin. That, like, they'd be fine with it. And I remember at the time— Venmin was very sort of reassured listening to these voters that their instincts were in the right place. And I remember being like, eh, I wonder how sticky that gas price mm, thing's going to be. Right. And it turned out not very sticky. But more importantly, to your point about the media, these guys loved Ukraine back then. They wanted to get Putin and they wanted to help and they, they admired the Ukrainians. When we get to the, the next section about where people are now, suffice it to say it's different. And I think that your point about the media is dead on. Like, there has been a relentless campaign to change how these voters view what's happening there.
1: And it's working.
0: No, it's totally working. But I guess, why do you think Tucker Carlson and the entire right-wing infrastructure, it's still, to me, sort of gobsmacking that they've become, it's just not too much to say pro-Putin. Oh. Like, what? what is happening? Why do they want to do this?
1: Boy, that is a gigantic subject, so with the caveat to everyone that I'm going to do this in shorthand, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, I think Fox in particular, its brand is we are the loyal beleaguered opposition to the gigantic democratic machine that runs this country. And it's an attitude they took with them even when the White House and both houses were in the hands of Republicans. They are addicted to this notion that we are the plucky gorillas telling you the truth against this giant blob. And so, of course, because Biden and NATO are all in on this and helping Ukraine, it's not an interesting hour for Tucker to come on and say, hey, you know, United States basically doing a good job. You don't keep people riveted in their seats with giant waves of cortisol and dopamine jolting through their brains with that. So some of it is just the kind of crazy showmanship that is meant to keep people angry and staring at the television until their eyeballs are dry. Some of this though, I think you can't underestimate the degree to which people like Tucker Carlson hate a cultural establishment of which they wanted to be a part and yet were rejected. And so it's almost like the kind of churlish, I'll get even with you approach is is to side with someone like Putin. That'll show those bastards at CNN and MSNBC who fired me what's what. You know, watch what I'll do now. But there is also a cultural affinity with some of these people. You know, these are people that say, well, Vladimir Putin, he's a brutal dictator. But this is a guy who really didn't want drag queens to win Eurovision, you know? That they have this kind of juvenile, culture-warring sense. Here we are in the middle of the biggest war since World War II in Europe, and the right is still going on about woke banks and drag queens. And I think that feeds into that entire thing of saying, look, we just have to take this side. And I thought When you said it's not too much to say it's pro-Putin, it's openly pro-Putin. Yeah. There's not even subtlety about this anymore. I mean, Carlson, as the kind of avatar of this, went years ago from, well, I'm just asking questions. Why shouldn't we side with Russia? Is this really our business? All the way to Zelensky's a gangster and Ukraine's a crazy dictatorship and all of this kind of Kremlin sludge and slime that has made its way from Russian television onto American television. Because it sells, because it's culturally in sync with people like him believe. And because it's a kind of natural oppositionism to people who really think they are like the plucky gorillas, even though they have the highest rated shows on cable.
0: Yeah. In fact, with that, just because I think these next group of sound bites really confirms what you just said, let's listen to these two time Trump voters that we talked to for this episode. Because, you know, most of them, I think seven out of nine, just in this group in particular, wanted to see the U.S. play a lesser Role in world affairs, period. And zero people wanted the U.S. to act as a world leader during global entanglements. So let's listen to them talk about why.
1: We already knew Ukraine was a corrupt country. We've seen it and heard about it throughout the past. Now he's going through and closing churches to any Christians over there. And we're paying the major share of the financial aid to the country. And it's probably going in the front door, right back out the back door. The
0: Ukraine situation is, in a way, a cloak to make Russia and China very powerful together. So Putin's goal is to tag team up with China. And that's his whole push, is to weaken us militarily, to drain us economically. So this aid to Ukraine is a game, if you will, the whole thing is a farce,
2: Mm and it's to
0: weaken us, Mm -hmm. to to divert us, our attention, our energy, so that China and Russia can become very powerful and militarily crush us, because there's no money that is filtering into our military. That's done on purpose by this current administration. It makes me really nervous.
2: They don't care. They think that borders are bad in the United States, but they want to send money to another country for borders. Yeah, I mean, and how about the train spill too, right? <laughs> the train spill happens and, and Biden's mm. like, hey, let's give money to Ukraine. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Why don't you just go help all those people? Right. right, right. What is happening? Like, I couldn't even believe that was happening. The media has been pumping all this Putin stuff forever. I could care less about the guy. I mean, when Trump was in office, Obviously, he respected us, so there was going to be no messing around like what's going on now. But Zelensky, what people don't understand, he is exactly, to a T, the same guy as Putin is. He still has all the same corruption. He's stealing money from everybody. He's oppressing people. He's the same guy in a different suit. So I was never for that since the beginning. Always been against it. They should not have dime. I don't care if Russia takes Um, it over or not. It's irrelevant to us. We got so many problems here. We need to solve what's going on here. Wow.
0: So, okay. Now I got to say there's two things. One is you can just see how much the whole of right-wing media is just filtering through people. I never heard this last year, the idea that Ukraine was a corrupt country. And one of those women seemed to be suggesting that we were – diverting the money to Ukraine and that that was like the goal of Russia and China so that they could like drain us of our money and then crush us. And we're too stupid to know that, I guess. I had you watch the one group, but this has been coming up over and over and over again. And we don't ask a ton about foreign policy, but we often just ask people, hey, what do you think about what's happening in Ukraine? And we've just seen it evolve over time. And the number one thing that comes up is this idea of we've got too many problems here. We've got a border issue. You know, we've got an education issue. We're not taking care of our own people. And deep in that kind of analysis is really the America first Trump idea.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, Sarah, I mean. Go ahead. You know, as a veteran of 80s politics, I have to tell you, this is very much a horseshoe moment because as I was listening to this, oh, the train spill and we've got. These were the arguments of the American left, Mm -hmm. the far American left. Why are we sending money to NATO and, you know, to fight the Soviet Union that has no interest in us if we just leave them alone and Reagan's going to take all that money from our schools and our towns? And I mean, I'm listening to this and I'm saying, holy crap, this is 1984 all over again, but from the far left. And it really proves the horseshoe theory that if you just go far enough to the right, you will come around to the left and vice versa. If you go far enough to the left, you will sound like a rightist. And I took a couple of notes while that clip was going, by the way, of all the things people believe, this was also, I don't know if you'll play this clip, but there were at least two people in there who think we've been in Afghanistan for 30 years, Yeah, which is off by a full decade. Mm -hmm. And it was twice, two people, 30 years is just too long. Yes, I agree. Good thing we weren't there for 30 years but there is that confidence again. These are things everybody knows. Everybody knows they're shutting down churches. Everybody knows the money is going out the back door. Everybody knows that they're trying to drain us. Again, not even bothering to read the news that that this tiny fraction of American weapons and aid has now been used by the Ukrainians to destroy like the bulk of the Russian armed forces at this point, but glued to cable, glued to internet newsletters, glued to YouTube. And I don't know how you break through that. I think the reason you didn't see it when the war broke out is that there was just so much video and so much obvious shock at what Putin had done that it was really hard to just kind of stick your head in the sand. And it took a while for all of the kind of American propagandists to regroup. You know that I, and I'll get off this particular soapbox, but you know from watching the way I interact with people on social media, I'm all for putting everything that happens, putting it on blast. I would love to take nothing but an hour of RT the way Julia Davis does and show these Russians saying, we should nuke Ukraine. We should nuke Georgia. We should destroy London. We should attack the Americans, you know, and just put it on there all night because and I keep thinking this watching these focus groups, is that if you walked in there and said, look, here's what the Russians are doing. Here's what they said. You'd get, well, I don't know that. I didn't see that. Right. They have this amazing ability with that huge epistemological surety to say, well, I don't think that's happening. That's not what I know. And I don't know how you break through that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this comes down to the theory that I talk about all the time, which is the Republican Triangle of Doom, which is the toxic and symbiotic relationship between the right-wing infotainment media, the politicians, and the voters. And this, to me, is a perfect example of how it works and how they sort of mutually enforce to push people more and more into a radical place. See, when I heard people a year ago, I, you know, actually one of my shticks that I can't let go of is the fact that like I like people. I think that they're good generally. And I think this was is your of- first mistake. I know. I know I know I know. You and I don't <laughs> agree on this. But like here's the thing like last year when I was listening to them talk about Ukraine, their instincts were all correct. It was to root for Ukraine you know, you heard the woman in the first clip talk about the old lady that was giving the Russian soldiers the sunflower seeds so that when they were killed, uh, sunflowers grow in their place. And people loved that. They thought it was badass. Ukrainians were on the side of righteousness. And then you watch the right-wing media. And I think for for some of the reasons you say about, uh, you can't say anything nice about Joe Biden. So basically, some of it's just negative polarity or negative polarization. We got to be against Joe Biden. And so we're going to side against all his foreign policy decisions to support Ukraine. And so now we're sort of weirdly pro-Russia, but you can just see how their instincts were right, these people. And it was the right-wing media working on them over this past year that has now brought them to this place. And I think sometimes I have a more charitable view maybe than you do to some degree, because like they didn't come up with that stuff on their own. Like There's a poisonous right-wing infotainment media that is feeding it to them to keep them mad, as you say. But
1: but and and let me just say, all joking aside, I am actually am a humanist, and I'm just less optimistic than you are. Neither of us can begin to match our friend Jonathan last, who <laughs> um, you know is the Prince of Darkness. So in the in the big scheme of things, I'm somewhere slightly more optimistic than Jonathan, definitely less optimistic than you. But here's what I think is going on that you're missing about this. Yes, people their natural instinct at that moment because it's interesting and it's exciting and it's got a moral clarity to it. And so they kind of bandwagon onto that. But I think one of the things I saw reviewing the focus group footage is that this is part of an overall American thing, which is that you can see that these are folks that have a kind of restless dissatisfaction in general, And they're looking to stick that onto something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I'll put up with high gas prices. And then it's like, what the fuck? I hate gas prices now. You know, it's like something goes by and they say, yes, that's the thing I'm mad about. Oh, this new thing, that's it. You know, that's the thing that I'm really mad about. And the problem is that I think, you know, and I've been more and more inclined, I'm just going to plug my book here and say, ever since I wrote, our own worst enemy, I've been more and more inclined to say this is part of just a kind of spiritual and civic emptiness that people are looking to blame on something. and so they kind of go and it's happening on to people on the left as well. but the American right, in particular, because of their location, because of their declining demographics, their rural location, yep. etc, they're saying, I am very unhappy with the world, and somebody or something is to blame. So let's see. You know what it is? It's that weird guy in Ukraine who's just like Putin because everybody sucks. It's, you know, if only Joe Biden wasn't jungled up with the oil companies, he'd open up the strategic reserve and gas would be a buck a gallon again. That kind of stuff. And I think, again, as you point out so cogently, there isn't a media politics entertainment ecosystem that says, hey, We understand that feeling you have. We will enable that. We will give you all the rationalizations you need. And all you have to do is sit your ass in that chair for two or three hours a night and buy pillows.
0: Yeah, this is why I, when I think about who I blame, you know, this is me and JBL's most fundamental disagreement. My Jonathan Last, who you bring up, my best friend and podcast partner. Like Tucker Carlson knows better. The Fox News brass knows better. We know that they lie. He doesn't care. No, I know he, he doesn't knows, care. But- I know he doesn't care. But that that's my point is I guess that's who I reserve just my ire for especially cuz I've read your book and I thought your book was great. But the the thing you know, I see it in people and there's a loneliness. Yes. Now, and a lot of these voters are older. And the world, even though it feels like it's gotten closer with social media ever they are just more and more isolated and they are looking for community. And they find community in all being mad together right. about the ways in which the world has sort of done them wrong and their grievance and somebody else is getting this or that. And I, I guess that's why I just always sort of feel compassion. Like, it sounds like a terrible life to sit in a chair and watch Tucker Carlson and just be mad.
1: Okay, but I, I- – I will try and uh, mediate between you and Jonathan because I think you're Mm -hmm. both right. But on the other hand, as old school conservatives, all three of us, whatever happened to human agency?
0: Yeah, no, personal responsibility. I agree. It's another one of those big shifts in the party. Agree, agree, agree.
1: When I think of people who sit there and just stick that electrode in their neck every night, right, this kind of comes back to an argument like about, say, drug abuse, right? Right say, this is terrible. These people are addicted to this thing that's killing them. And you get some people who do the tough love stuff of saying, well, they should just say no, you know, you get the Nancy Reagan, just say no. Mm-hmm. And that's the equivalent of, you know, me and Jonathan saying, here's an idea, turn the goddamn television off, change the channel. But as you point out, this is also a sense of community. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had an argument with an old friend from my hometown. I went back and he was just spewing all this nonsense and I said, where are you getting this? And he said, Hannity, he's the man. And you could see that like my old buddy, he was like, Sean Hannity was his new pal. Yeah. You know, like this is the guy, he works in the restaurant business, he works long hours, his TV's on at night and Sean Hannity is his pal. Um, I've talked about other friends from from my hometown and from school that I've had these disagreements, my, my late brother. But in this case, I said, look, you once said I was your smartest friend. And I said, you can believe me or you can believe Sean Hannity. And you could see him kind of going, oh, wow. I don't see you very often. You know, like in his head, I think he's like, I don't see <laughs> I you see very Sean often. I see Sean every night. <laughs> I see Sean every, exactly, Sarah. That's exactly, I see Sean every night. And, you know, I see you, you know, at Christmas and Easter. And and it was really disturbing. And I, again, if we offload any responsibility for this to just say, look, this candy, this crack that these guys are selling is just too good, the blue meth that they're selling is just too good, then we really have to give up on democracy because the answer to that is paternalism, to say, okay, these people simply have no human agency. They're not capable of making their own decisions. You cannot inform them. And anytime you put on a bunch of carny barkers, they're just going to walk up and hand over their money. I actually don't believe that about the American public. I think that a little bit of that tough love, a little bit of that stigma. I I would like to bring back stigma because that conversation, I said, I'm sorry, but you know, you're rotting your brain watching Fox news. And my buddy was like, wow, you know, that's dude harsh. (laughs) So, you know, I think, I think that could be recovered, but I, on, on this sense, I'm like with Jonathan, that people want this and they're doing it voluntarily. And that says something terrible about them. But with you, I agree they are lonely, even though we are a closer society because of the internet, that closeness is artificial. Yeah. It's all plastic. It's electronic closeness, but it's not actually the shaking hands with another human being and looking into their eyes and having a conversation. And so these people are terribly lonely. They're scared because they think, as one of my friends once said, they think they're on the wrong side of the evolutionary roller Yeah, in terms of where their towns and uh, way of life are going. But I'm sorry, but that's when I go back to being a hard lender. I'm saying, I'm sorry. I know you're scared. I understand change is scary, but that's not an excuse for siding with psychopaths, seditionists, insurrectionists, and the goddamn Kremlin. Okay. Not enough. Okay.
0: So, all right. So- Okay, you wrote a couple weeks ago about the candidates' responses to Tucker Carlson's questionnaire, right? right? And we read those statements to our present-day group, and they, unsurprisingly, they liked a lot more of the isolationist policy statements from Trump and DeSantis, a lot better than those from Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, and Chris Christie. Here's the thing. So it's not just the media and that the people believe the media, right? What we saw, now I know that there's been a cleanup on aisle 2024 here for Ron DeSantis, (laughs) and he's trying to walk back a little bit of what he said, but like- The toxic and symbiotic relationship between the voters, the elected officials, and the right-wing infotainment media, like DeSantis absolutely knows better. And he has decided to call it a territorial dispute. He's following the voters, right? He's allowing the right-wing infotainment media who has poisoned the minds of these voters. And now he needs them to vote for him. So he is now saying that he wants to be more isolationist. This is just a territorial skirmish that the U.S. doesn't have any vital national interest in it. And what does that do? It creates another layer of people who also would know better or who would be inclined toward taking a harder stance against Russia – And it turns them into people who are like, well, I'm a DeSantis supporter, and the two main people who represent the Republican Party now say that it doesn't matter to us, we should just stay out. That has an impact, right? And so-
1: But I think part of it is that they're following Trump. I mean, look, I really believe that at this point, the Republicans, and I've said this many times, they're a post-policy. They're not even a party. They are a movement. They're a post-policy movement. If Trump came out tomorrow and said, you know, I've been thinking about it, Putin, bad guy. Accordion hands start flying, right? Putin's a bad guy. We got to take him out. Uh, I'll take this guy down. They'd be all in. I mean, I really think we've proven over five years that Donald Trump can whipsaw back and forth 180 degrees and people go with him simply because that is their, you know, that loneliness again. It's like, well, this is my tribe. Trump is my big daddy. And if big daddy says, we're going to do it this way, we're going to do it this way. And proof of that is look at the way he has turned on a dime about Desantis and about things like COVID responses. I mean, Trump sounds like Fauci at this point, right? You know, it's like Florida had this terrible COVID response, and all these people died, and he shut down things, and then he didn't, and he opened them, and he. And people are going, "Yeah," and I'm like, "Oh my god, you you guys have the the historical memory of a tree squirrel." But and I think that's simply because of kind of a cultish identification. So I think that's a big part of it. I think. DeSantis is a candidate of the donor class. When he stepped on that rake about, oh, it's territorial dispute, I assume that he got angry phone calls from people saying, what the hell are you talking about? And so he had to clean this up. Even before he tried that, DeSantis is in free fall. Trump gives people this moral theater, right? DeSantis, bad, me, good. Ukraine, terrible Putin, okay, you know, back and forth. And they go, okay, these are, again, people that are adrift and looking for somebody to latch on to and to hang that vague sense of emptiness and frustration on. And I think that that's what's going on here.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm going to disagree that DeSantis is in free fall. I think that is too strong a statement. I don't want to let that just hang out there in my opinion. Fair enough. Okay. but,
1: But where is he now? He's like, he went from like neck and neck to like 27%.
0: There were two polls this week, Monmouth and then Morning Consult, that both saw a slide for DeSantis and Trump sort of picking up steam. And that is on top of Nate Cohn had done this aggregation of the polls where he compared where Trump was in the same poll. So he took a bunch of the same polls, and Trump had gained about a net four points, and DeSantis had lost about a net four points. So I think free fall is too strong, but I do think that you're right – I think that you're right that DeSantis has had a bad couple of weeks here as he's kind of put his toe in the water of really getting into it. And we see people kind of looking at Trump and still liking that show somewhat. So that's true. But here's – here's so I set up the Republican Triangle of Doom, and I knew you and I were going to argue about this and the culpability of the voters <laughs> because I just blame the two the, – the politicians and the right-wing infotainment media to me are the really pernicious side. And, and I want to go to bat for the voters one more time here, which is – One of the reasons I think that the Republican Party has turned against its more hawkish ways is because of Iraq and Afghanistan, right? It's soured the GOP base. And I want to play a telling snippet from the February 2016 debate where Donald Trump went after the Iraq war head on.
2: It took Jeb Bush, if you remember, at the beginning of his announcement, when he announced for president, took him five days he went back. It was a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. Took him five days before his people told him what to say. And he ultimately said
1: it was a mistake. The war in Iraq, we spent $2 trillion, thousands of lives. We don't even have it. Iran is taking over Iraq with the second largest oil reserves in the world. Obviously, it was a mistake. George Bush made a mistake. We so, can
2: make mistakes, but that one was a beauty. We should have never been in Iraq. We have destabilized right. the Middle East. But so you, so, I mean, so you still think he should be peace. I think it's my turn, isn't it? You do whatever you want. You call it whatever you want. I want to tell you, they lied. Okay. They
1: said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none, and they knew there were none. There were no weapons of mass right. destruction. Okay, all right. All
0: right, now here's the thing. At the time, I remember watching this and being like, the Republican voters aren't going to go for this. And that was one of the early indications of just how much I didn't understand what was going on with Republican base voters because he was talking in a language that they agreed with. Like, you guys lied about this. This is wrong. I mean, it was one of the reasons nobody wanted Jeb Bush. And I don't think any of us knew that. But do you remember that period of time? Yeah. Did you see it going sideways then? Or what did you think?
1: You know, this is the classic time where all of us on the on the right look back and say, which was the moment you thought was going to kill him? You know, and I thought it was the John McCain sure. thing. So by this point, I figured he could just drop his pants and start ranting in Russian and it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. But re- again, what really strikes me, listening to that clip then and now, I'm like, wow. So Donald Trump is basically Dennis Kucinich now. Yeah. It's one thing to say yeah, the Iraq war, poorly executed, a screw up, a good attempt by a misguided administration. But, you know, among Republicans, I don't expect Democrats to talk that way, but certainly among Republicans, that's what you would have expected. And instead, it's like, wow, when did Ralph Nader wander into this debate? And again, I think the reason he got away with it was not because of anything about Iraq specifically, with the possible exception that a lot of military families in the Republican Party, and, and I'm sure a lot of the people who were there or their families or new people, they were the people who bore the burden. So let's, yeah. with that caveat aside, that perhaps that resonated with them. But nonetheless, I think for a lot of people, the real code underneath what Trump was saying is those smarty pants far away made decisions that you didn't understand and didn't want to be involved in. And I'm running against an establishment. Of course, now I come back to my culpability of the voters issue. Trump is standing there saying these people did something. And in my mind, I'm adding that you all consistently, especially Republicans, that you all consistently supported, that you were all pretty good with. You know, one of the most controversial things I wrote in the last year was when I basically blamed Afghanistan on us, on the people. How much effect did Afghanistan ever have on an election after 2002? Congressional, presidential, nothing. It wasn't there. People say, oh, Afghanistan, we got to, but, you know, but gas prices. And I mean, it just wasn't there. And all of a sudden, they watched Trump and they got a signal about what to be mad about. They said, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's what I'm mad I about. I'm mad about I do not agree Iraq. with
0: this. I do not agree with this. I think he was tapping into something that existed, which was a disillusionment, you know, people being exhausted by being at war for, at that time, it had been a long oh, time. I'm
1: pushing back there, sorry, People were not at war. The U.S. military they, was at war. That's Take
0: your point that, like, they were didn't have to engage day to day. But, like, whenever somebody would get reminded, they would be like, why are we still doing this
1: Well, okay. why are we still doing this? Then, you know, you're going to vote for Barack Obama. He's going to do a full pullout. Oh, wait, if he does that, he's a coward. So he's not going to do it. Well, I can't believe we're still there. Okay, well, we'll elect Trump. He's going to get us out of there. Well, we can't just get out of there. You know, I mean, the problem was that the American public was Goldilocks about this from the beginning. Get us in there and do good stuff. And if you pull out, you're a complete weenie. Even now, love or hate Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, the way he did it, it was a complete mess. And I wrote a piece at the time saying this was a mess. On the other hand, it was what people wanted him to do. You know, if you listen to these groups and if you look at the polling, get us out of Afghanistan. But what they really meant was, get us out of Afghanistan in a completely cost-free, non-painful way that doesn't leave anything in the hands of the bad guys. That's not a real option. That's not the real world. That's magical thinking. And what's the new line on Joe Biden? That he's a wuss, that he's weak, that he doesn't fight back. This is an argument you cannot win. I wrote a piece about the Iraq War two days ago and People mostly from the left have been bombarding me, but I keep pointing out, okay, the war went sour. What was the response of the American people? They reelected George W. Bush with 3.3 million extra votes. At some point, you have to just step back and say, I understand your anger about this issue. But what is it that you wanted your government to do? And how did you express that through voting? And I'll just I'll draw one international parallel here. Oh, Brexit. You know, we've never wanted to be in the European Union. Okay, but you elected government after government after government that kept you in the European Union and you never really insisted on it. And you finally did it by stumbling into a referendum that was a razor-sharp thing, and now you're full of regret. And now you just want somebody to blame. And I feel very strongly if Bush had said, As I'm leaving office, I'm firing Rumsfeld. We're going to get out of this. You know, we're going to draw down. But the American public didn't want to do that. They kept saying, well, as long as it's not dangerous. Well, it is dangerous. Foreign policy is dangerous. And they didn't want to hear that, Sarah. They didn't want to hear about cause. So I think that that might
0: be true to some degree that they did want to get out of Afghanistan with a lot fewer casualties and not feeling like we were abandoning. It was a horrible thing to watch. And right, yes. and people didn't didn't as want that on there. As it was
1: always going to be, no matter who but, did but it. But
0: here's the thing where I think you know a lot about foreign policy. I'm like slightly more sympathetic to them because I have always been somebody who like just cares more about domestic policy than foreign policy. And I might know more than the average voter. But like, I just think you come from a perspective where you know all of this stuff, like you're an expert in it. They don't know any of this stuff. And like, where are they supposed to learn about it? They're going to learn about it from... Because they have family members who are in the military. You you hear this in the groups. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the groups here where some people who had perspective on it had it because either their kid was in the military or they themselves had served in the military. Otherwise, they're relying on people that they trust to tell them things. And I think that it is
1: No, that's where I disagree. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. So, what I was gonna say here, the thing that occurred to me is you were you were saying this. There is a person in your focus group I kind of admired because she's like you on this. She said, look, I don't know a lot about this stuff. At one point, your your host said, who feels, you know, that that they don't know enough about these issues to reach really firm conclusions? One person raises her hand. One. And you to your credit, you're saying, look, I'm an informed voter, but I really don't know a lot about this stuff. The rest of those people in these focus groups are like, well, of course, it's because we're just exporting heroin to get money for black ops.
0: (laughs) Somebody did say that.
1: That, Somebody did say that. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, but there has to be at least a natural curiosity to say, okay, what actually is happening? Why are we there? And The thing that flashed in my mind, some years ago, I was on a panel with Dan Balls from the Washington Post, and a guy stood up in the audience and he said, why don't you guys in the press write more explainers about stuff? And Dan, very quietly, without missing me, he said, we do. You don't read them. Yeah. And so if it's not on TV and it's not fun and interesting and engaging and dramatic and visual, then people just... Tune it out. When the Washington Post did that book on the secret history of Afghanistan, my head kind of exploded because as I was reading all this stuff, I'm like, if you had been reading a newspaper for ten years, you already knew almost all of this stuff. And what what they're really rebelling against is not more information; it's information that is boring. Let me tell you what I always tell everybody you know listening out there: government and even foreign policy is boring. It's dull. And people have gotten used to the idea that nothing should be boring. And so they say, well, I know what's going on. We're selling heroin to fund black ops. I know what's going on. We're in bed with a, you know, with a Nazi dictator who's a Jew. I'm in this Marvel comics universe where, you know, everybody's an interesting weirdo villain. And yes, I know a lot about foreign policy, but I don't, as a moral issue, I don't have a huge amount of Certainty about some of these things. I mean, I'm 20 years later. I just wrote a piece you kind know, of saying, geez, you know, I thought the Iraq War was the right thing to do, but my God, we screwed it up and people got killed, you know, for nothing." Um, I, you know what I, <laughs> I know we got to get to another clip, but I was watching this and I've done this impression before, but it struck me that you had a bunch of people who all reminded me of Cliff Clavin, yeah, from Cheers, the mailman from Cheers. Right. Uh, well, uh, you know what. Uh, It's a known fact, you see, that, uh, you know, we've been in Afghanistan for 30 years uh, because we're uh, moving the tide. And I thought to myself, holy shit, if you're a candidate for office, how do you even begin to engage these people? And I don't know.
0: All right. So let's let's see how spot on your impression there is and listen (laughs) to these guys talk about why they've shifted, why they're disillusioned about foreign policy.
2: The turning point was when I started to ask questions and I was being demonized for asking questions. And that was the turning point when it was like, oh, well, why did we do X, Y, Z, ABC? Or, you know, why weren't there plane parts in front of the Pentagon? You know, like various little things like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, it started arguments and things. And I thought, whoa, arguments. I was just asking a question. I mean, if it's all true, then where's the answer? Anyway, that was a big turning point for me that got me down this road of questioning everything. Like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what to believe anymore. And then we find out that we got into Iraq based on all these lies. And it's like, wow, now what do we believe? I don't know. I know bin Laden did what he did and everything, but there's not one single American life I would trade for that idiot. So all all those Americans that died pursuing that idiot, we could have done it with drones. I mean, there's a million ways we could have handled that differently. And uh, it just sickens me that all those kids died for nothing.
1: They entered Afghanistan without having any real exit plan. Yeah, you know, I got deployed during the first Gulf War. We knew when we went in, we were going to do one thing: free Kuwait, and then we're going to go home. And that's what we did. The plan was in place. Afghanistan, they went in blindly, thinking they were going to convert a whole country to think American. Had no plans on how to get out. When we see the results of that thirty years later.
0: I have a son whose first day in the army was 9/11, and was struggling a bit in college. So we felt like it was a good thing. And I went from thinking that he was joining the military to straighten him up to thinking you have a really smart man that's going to go in and help our country. So I was totally loyal to it. Ten years later, when I had a son come out broken, and the military was not helping him, and I see a broken son at 42 and he trusts no one and does not believe in what he did it's devastated our family so yeah we feel betrayed in the whole situation but we thought we were doing the right thing at the time Okay, so we've got. Ugh. Listen, so so just we did we did four people there. So one of them, I'm pretty sure that first guy when he was just asking questions, I think he meant about 9/11 and whether or not it happened because there weren't playing parts in front of the Pentagon. Yeah. Uh, so we got one 9/11 conspiracy guy, uh, and the other guy didn't think we should get Bin Laden. Laden's just an idiot, and then the third one was uh, talking about Afghanistan and we've been there for 30 years. But this fourth one, this is somebody who whose son was in the military and who had an experience that has shattered him. We had a piece by Will Selber, who we love over at the Bulwark, talking about what it was like in Afghanistan. It was just an incredibly shattering piece. So I guess there's this part of me that says, I hear a woman like that, and I think, I don't know. I'm not sure we did enough as a culture or that our elected officials did enough to help people understand what the cost was going to be and to explain why it's worth it.
1: Wow, I came away from that differently. And that's the second time around. I mean, I watched it last night and, um, you know, went through it again with you today. First, the first thing that struck me about the 9-11 guy, said, well, I was demonized. Who demonized you?
0: Probably anybody he talked to about 9-11 being an inside job.
1: Maybe demonized was like people going, what? Or I suspect spent a lot of time on internet chat rooms. Yeah. Which is where people really... Probably roughed him up, and so now he thinks that the whole government, that everything, democracy is bad. Okay, because I asked about plane parts in front of the Pentagon, where hundreds of people died, and people got mad at me. The uh, guy who said, "Well, I wouldn't have given one life to get Bin Laden." Well, I'm sorry, but your millions of your fellow citizens demanded it of your government that Bin Laden be found and killed. Right? Imagine saying right after 9/11, and in those first five or six years, hey. One American soldier isn't worth getting bin Laden. Guy's a jerk. Let him go. There was literally almost no one, again, out of the Kucinich wing, or you know, I mean maybe I'm being unfair to poor Dennis Kucinich, but there was nobody in America was making that case. That's an easy thing to say 20 years later, because it sounds like righteous anger. But I would really like to know if that guy was saying that in two thousand and two. Um, the no plan for getting out of Afghanistan. Well, you know, everybody's a military strategist again, you know, Bush said, we're going to eradicate Afghanistan as a source of terrorist threats, which for 20 years, and my argument about this at the end of the occupation was, Hey, for 20 years, there wasn't another 9-11 for 20 years. There were no more terrorist threats coming out of Afghanistan. That's what you wanted, you know, but the last one, this is where we really diverge. The thing I heard that this, uh, woman's son Who apparently, she said he served 10 years?
0: Yeah, she said, 10 years later when I had a son come out broken and the military was not helping him.
1: And on that, I think, you know, to criticize the fact that we don't help veterans enough in general in this country is absolutely right. And it's one of the really shameful things. We glorify veterans as Spartans when they're going in, and then we tend to forget about them when they're coming out. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. But I, the idea that somehow all of American foreign policy is a failure because my son, to me, that resonated with this thing we've been talking about all morning, which is I have things in my life that have gone wrong and I'm going to hang knees on giant issues of policy. Now, if the guy was in the military 10 years, came out broken, then the government should have helped him. I don't know where he served. I don't know if he was in combat, don't know what he did, but that becomes this kind of tragic personal story that somehow gets woven into a larger political narrative.
0: All right. I think that's a totally fair point you're making in response to that. And I understand why you would hear that and that. And you're right. There is some of that in there. I guess this is my question to you. It's the final one, Mm -hmm. which is, okay. so you think a lot of the problem here is with the voters, that a lot of this responsibility lies with them. I know I, I read something you wrote where you said something like, you know, Iraq, was a terrible mistake, but it would be another mistake to draw the single-minded conclusion, much as we did after Vietnam, that everything everywhere will forever be another Iraq. But like, I've listened to these voters on all kinds of issues, and the, the absence of trust, like the extent to which trust has just dissolved, and they don't trust any institutions, and they basically only trust their peers who sort of agree with them, and I guess Tucker Carlson to some degree. Like, what do we do? what is the solution if if there's going to be Tucker Carlson's and an entire infotainment media system and politicians who know better are going to pander to them and tell them like, yes, let's have this isolationist foreign policy. Like, what do we do to create a more responsible civic commitment to what America stands for circa 1980?
1: Boy, I don't know. Um, I think some of this is not fixable. On this, I'm kind of – you know, in the pessimist camp. And that particularly people my age, right? Late 50s, early 60s, they've gone down this rabbit hole. They're not coming back. I don't know who was in favor of Trump in 1999. Okay. (laughs) So there's always going to be those folks. But I think some of it has to do with the political class being willing to maybe even lose elections if it means speaking truth to the public. And being more stoked, you know. We talk about 1980, and um, I don't know if you remember the movie Roger and Me, right? Michael Moore, the only good movie Michael Moore ever made, where he's trying to like track down the head of General Motors and and chew him out about closing a factory in Michigan. And there was this part where Reagan was in it, and someone said, "Well, what can we do? You know, we're in Flint, Michigan." And Reagan was like, "Uh, uh, you could move." (laughs) You know, and I thought, you know, people go Ronald Reagan, you know, pandered to the white working class. I mean, imagine being a political leader now and saying, this coal town you're living in in Kentucky or wherever, it's not coming back. You need to move. Both McCain and Obama did that, you know, standing in front of factories and saying, these are not going to reopen. Whatever these were, that's not going to be that again. And man, people just didn't want to hear that. But I think if leaders are going to lead, then they have to tell the truth. You can't be an Elise Stefanik and talking about investigating the DA and you know, Rand Paul. We're going to put Alvin Bragg and just, you have to be able to step forward and say, look, I'm going to say things you may not like them. And if you don't want to vote for me, then I understand. But at least it's got to be part of the public discussion. And we just have a class of people that particularly in the Republican Party who have decided that they were made for bigger and better things. And if lying to people is how they stay on television or stay in Washington and never having to, you know, live in rural Indiana or Pennsylvania, then that's what they're going to do. And I don't know how you overcome that other than simply voting them out of office enough times until somebody kind of hits that right formula. But I'm not, I mean, Sarah, I got to be honest, I'm not optimistic.
0: Well, I got to tell you, for all of our disagreements, it sounds like you and I do agree that the only way out of this is through leadership, which has always been my bag. The moral... Crumbling of the leadership in the Republican Party has been to me the is the main thing that's gone wrong. Like there's lots of other things. There's the media. There's, but like the way that people, and and Ron DeSantis is a perfect example of that right now. People who know better, who had ideals, just dropped them so that they could fall in favor. Like to me, that is the fundamental problem. The only way out of it is for somebody to say, I'm gonna tell you the truth. People think Donald Trump is telling the truth. It's what's so funny. I hear it in the groups all the time. They'll be like, yeah, I know Donald Trump, like he lies about stuff, but like he's telling the truth because people felt like he talked to them like they mattered and like they could understand them and not just talking points. Somebody is going to have to emerge that is willing to tell voters the truth and has the sort of charisma and smarts and ability that they believe them. That's it. That's the only way we're going to get out of this.
1: I think you're absolutely right that this abject moral cowardice and collapse of leadership on the part of the Republicans, we need to say to them, you know better. But I I just think we have to add to that, turning to the voters as well and say, and so do you. Deep down, you know better than this. You are better people than this. And you used to be, and you can be again.
0: Tom Nichols, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you, thanks Sarah. to all of you for listening to the Focus Group podcast. Please go rate and subscribe over wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is going to be our last episode for this season. We're just going to take a couple months hiatus here until we get deeper into the primary i wasn't even going to do this episode we were going to end on the culture wars but i just kept hearing so much ukraine stuff i really wanted to make you listen tom to what these voters were saying so i appreciate you doing this sort of bonus episode with me and uh i will let everybody know when we're back probably around may or june
2: see ya